This evening, we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Nehemiah. With this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 9. As you make your way to the ninth chapter of Nehemiah, I just want to take a moment to remind you that Nehemiah was the man that the Lord raised up to rebuild the defensive walls of Jerusalem so that the people of God could safely serve God there at the temple of God. Once the walls were rebuilt and after the defensive doors were hung, Nehemiah organized the watchmen to guard the gates of the city. And and that's when the rest of the people then gathered together there at the temple in order to celebrate the Feast of Trumpets as an elderly man named Ezra began to teach from the Torah. As he taught from the law of God, he encouraged the people to make all of the necessary preparations so that they could observe the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was in the final verses of our previous chapter, that's where we learned about the way that the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity, they began to make these temporary tabernacles, which were called booths. And they lived in those booths for seven days as a memorial of the way that the Lord delivered their forefathers from Egypt. Well, then after keeping the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days, the people then gathered together on the eighth day for a sacred assembly as the people continued to worship the Lord with gladness. And now here in our text tonight, we find the children of Israel, they're gathering together for the teaching of the Torah. And as they continued to study the law of the Lord, uh, the assembly was then moved to tears as they realized how far they had fallen short of God's righteous standard. And as the hearts of the people were humbled before the Lord, the Levites began to remind them about the reoccurring rebellion of Israel. That's right. Israel was a nation that continued to rebel against the Lord, and then they would repent, and then they would return, and then they would rebel and repent and return and rebel and repent and return, and so on and so forth. As the Levites began to remind them about this, the teachers of the law also reminded them about the merciful kindness of our gracious God who continued to receive them over and over and over again. And as we make our way through the text before us tonight, well, it's my hope that we might begin to realize that God's grace will always be greater than our sins. God's grace will always be greater than our sins. And it's for this reason that he's always ready to restore the repentant. With this as the focus, I want to consider the merciful message that the Levites were presenting to the people. And if you would look with me here at Nehemiah chapter 9, we'll begin our study there at verse 1 because here we learn that it was on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dust on their heads. Then those of uh, Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners And they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day. And for another fourth, they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. Now here in the beginning of this chapter, we find the assembly of Israel. They're gathering together once again to to read from the Torah. And it's there in verse 3 where we learn that they spent a fourth of the day reading from the book of the law. Incredible. They spent a fourth of the day studying the Torah. And and then from the reading of the Torah, this turned into a time of confession and worship 
as the people confessed their sins, as well as their iniquities, uh, the iniquities of their forefathers, and they spent a fourth of the day doing that. Now, in light of all of this, I can't help but to remember what King David wrote in the 19th Psalm. It's there where we learn that the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Think about that. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Or in other words, the law of the Lord is perfect because it helps sinners to realize our need for repentance. The law of the Lord is here to show us that we have fallen short of God's perfect standard so that we might repent. I like the way that Paul put it in Galatians chapter 3. It's verse 24 where he declares, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. The law is our tutor, which is to say that the law was given to teach us about our need for forgiveness. The law was given so that sinners might realize that we desperately need the forgiveness of sins, which is, of course, received by faith in Jesus Christ. That being the case, we should notice how those who were convicted by the law of the Lord, they were then motivated to confess their sins. They read the law, they read from the Torah for a quarter of the day, and they were brought to tears. They were brought to a place of repentance as they confessed their sins. And not only that, but we also see here that they were moved to worship the Lord who had given them the law. As a matter of fact, look with me again here at Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 3. Here we learn that they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day, and for another fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. They confessed their sins, and they worshipped the Lord. That word worshipped was translated from a Hebrew word which was used of those who prostrate themselves as they humbly submit themselves to another. And in this this context, they're submitting themselves before the Lord. They're bowing down before the Lord. They're bowing their faces to the ground as a sign of submission. And it's at this moment when they're bowing down that the Levites then begin to exalt the name of the Lord. With this as the focus, I want to consider how these Levitical teachers began by acknowledging the almighty power of God. And so let's pick up our study of Nehemiah chapter 9. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 4, here we learn that Yeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Shenanai, they stood on the stairs of the Levites and cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Yeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, uh, Sherebiah, Hodijah, Shebaniah, and Pathahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all, the host of heaven worships you. Now here in these verses, we find the Levites encouraging the people to stand up. They had bowed down. They had placed their face in the dust of the earth, and they had humbled themselves before the Lord. And the Levites say, okay, stand up now and bless the one who created the heavens and the earth. Bless the one who made the host of heaven, which worships the Lord. At the same time, they also help the people to realize that the name of the Lord is exalted above all blessing and praise. Think about that for a moment. 
The name of the Lord is exalted. It's lifted up above all blessing and praise. In, in other words, as much as you would want to bless the name of the Lord, his name is even exalted above that. As much as you would want to praise the name of the Lord, his name is exalted even above that. Words can't even begin to express how glorious our God actually is. The most magnificent thought that we can imagine about God, it pales in comparison to how glorious he actually is. The very best thought that you can think about God doesn't even come close to how incredible he actually is. Think about that for a moment. With that being the case, we should rejoice in knowing that our creator has promised to inhabit the praise of those who worship him in spirit and in truth. That's what he says, that he inhabits our praise. Does he deserve more than our praise? Yeah. And so he condescends to inhabit our praise. Incredible. And with that, we should praise him as much as we can. With, with the highest, most magnificent thoughts about him that we can, because he's that and so much more. In order to further grasp how glorious our God actually is, the Levites then reminded the Israelites about the way that God led Father Abraham. And uh, with that, I'd like you to look with me here at Nehemiah chapter 9. We'll pick up at verse 7. Here we find them worshiping the Lord by declaring, you are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and gave him the name Abraham, you found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Girgashites, to give it to his descendants. You have performed your words, for you are righteous. Here in these verses, we find the Levites, they're now worshiping the, the God who led Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans and, and into the land of promise and, and along the way changed his name to Abraham. And not only that, but we also learn here that they're worshiping the Lord because he kept his covenant with Abraham by giving him descendants beyond measure, by giving him children and children's children and children's children's children, you know, which is beyond measure. And as we consider the way that the Levites focused on the blessings that the Lord poured out on Father Abraham, it's important for us to remember that Abraham received those blessings by faith. Abraham received the blessings of the Lord by faith. I like the way that Paul put it in Galatians chapter 3. There he declares, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. From this we can see how the blessings that the Lord promised to provide to Abraham were then accomplished through the sacrifice of Abraham's descendant, Jesus, who is the Christ. And just like Abraham, who received the promise of God by faith, 
Every sinner is able to receive the blessings of this promise by faith in the substitutionary sacrifice of our Savior Jesus. And it's for this reason that we ought to worship the Lord in the same way that Abraham worshiped the Lord. At the same time, we should also worship the Lord because he's the God who has promised to punish the unrepentant wicked. And I want to consider how the Levites put it here in Nehemiah chapter 9. If you would look with me here, we'll pick up our study at verse 9. Here they declared, you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants, and against all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted proudly against them. So you made a name for yourself as it is this day, and you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and their persecutors you threw into the deep as a stone into the mighty waters." Here in these verses, we find the Levites reminding the Israelites about the day when the Lord destroyed the armies of Egypt. And this, of course, is after the 10 plagues that were poured out there in the land by which the people were set free. And, And then as the Egyptians followed the Israelites, the Lord ended up destroying these armies. And as they reminded the Israelites about the way that the Lord protected their forefathers from the armies of Egypt, they began to worship the Lord for the way that he protects his people from the attacks of the enemy. This reminds me of the promise that Paul presented in 2 Peter. I'm sorry, this is a, a Peter's promise in 2 Peter chapter 2. There he declares, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. According to this promise that Peter presented, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly, those who trust in Jesus, and at the same time to reserve the unjust for a future punishment. Therefore, the God who destroyed the armies of Egypt... This is the same God who is able to protect us from the attacks of the enemy today, preserving us while preparing them for punishment. Therefore, we ought to worship him. Not only that, but this is the same God who led his people from Egypt to the land of promise. And I want to consider how the Levites put it here in our text tonight. So look with me here at Nehemiah chapter 9. We'll pick up our study at verse 12. Here the Levites declared, Moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar, and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the road which they should travel. You came down also on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought them water out of the rock for their thirst, and told them to go in to possess the land which you had sworn to give to them. Now here in these verses, we find the Levites, they're singing the praises of the the God who led them from Egypt to the land of promise, and and, and with a pillar of cloud by day, and and then by this pillar of fire by night, and and he led them in this miraculous sort of way. And and he not only guided them, but he also provided for them all along the way as he sent manna from heaven and brought water from a rock. And as we consider these provisions, 
It's important for us to remember that the manna from heaven was actually a symbol of our Savior, and that's exactly what the Lord explained in, in John chapter 6 when he described himself as being uh, the bread of life. The Lord Jesus is the bread of life, which was symbolized by the manna. And the rock that provided them with water there in the wilderness, that also was a symbol of our Savior. And that's what Paul tells us when he tells us that the, the spiritual rock that followed them was Christ. As we consider the way that God guided and provided for his people as they made their way from Egypt to the land of promise, it's important for us to remember that he already knew how they would rebel during these days. With this as the focus, I want to pick up our study beginning at verse 16. Here the Levites worship the Lord by declaring, they and our fathers acted proudly, hardened their necks, and did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey, and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. But they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. Even when they made a molded calf for themselves and said, this is your God, that brought you up out of Egypt and worked great provocations. Yet in your manifold mercies, you did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them on the road, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them the light and the way they should go. Here in these verses, we find the Levites continuing to worship the Lord for the, for the gracious God that he is. They worship the Lord because the Lord is ready to pardon those who rebel if they repent. And while it's true that the children of Israel continue to give him every reason to send them right back to Egypt, the merciful Lord was slow to anger. And he was abundant in kindness as he continued to lead his people to the land of promise. And as we consider how gracious and merciful he actually is, we must agree that God is worthy of our worship. To further make my case, we should consider how the God of Israel is gracious to those who will repent. And with this as the focus, I want to pick up our study of Nehemiah 9, beginning at verse 20. Here the Levites are worshiping the Lord by declaring this, you also gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Moreover, you gave them kingdoms and nations and divided them into districts so that they took possession of the land of Sihon, the, uh, the land of the king of Heshbon and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You also multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and brought them into the land which you, uh, you had told their fathers to go in and, and possess. So the people went in and possessed the land. You subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hands with their kings and the people of the land that they might do with them as they wished. And they took strong cities and a rich land and possessed houses full of all goods, cisterns already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and grew fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. 
And here in these verses, we learned about the way that the Lord continued to provide for his people. And yes, even after the rebellion of Korah, and even after the golden calf of Aaron, and even after all of their rebellious ways, the Lord still provided for them all along the way. And while it's true that the Israelites provoked the Lord there in the wilderness, it's also true that the Lord was still willing to forgive the repentant. And not only that, but he helped them to secure the land that he promised to provide to them according to the promise that he made to Father Abraham. From this, we can see how the Lord is not only merciful as he spares the repentant from the punishment that we deserve, but he's also gracious. He's a gracious God who graciously gives us the bountiful blessings that we don't deserve. And that's a good way to to consider the difference between mercy and grace. In God's mercy, he withholds the punishment that we deserve. And in his grace, he gives us blessings that we don't deserve. That being the case, we can rejoice in knowing that the Lord loves to pour out his gracious favor on those who will simply repent of their sins and return to him. To put it in the words of King Solomon from Proverbs chapter 3, Solomon tells us that the curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the just. Surely he scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. Those who will humble themselves before the Lord will not only receive the mercy that frees us from the punishments we deserve, but we also receive the grace that we do not deserve. Sadly, it's not uncommon for those who receive these blessings from the Lord to begin to take his grace for granted because that is the nature of our flesh. And as a result, there are many who take the blessings of God. You know, the the Lord gives us a better job, gives us more income, gives us, you know, greater uh, favor, uh, you know, with the people around us. And and it's, it's not uncommon for us to start taking advantage of all of these things and using them in a carnal way. And as a result, there are many who take the blessings of God and go and use it for you know, their own personal pleasure. And, and of course, this inevitably leads people away from the Lord as they return to the broad road that leads them to destruction. That being the case, we can be thankful that the Lord loves us so much that he's willing to correct us so that we might repent and return to him. Now, with this as the focus, I want to consider how the love of the Lord can result in his compassionate correction. And so let's pick up our study of Nehemiah chapter 9, beginning at verse 26. Here the Levites worshiped the Lord by declaring this, Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you, cast your law behind their backs, and killed your prophets who testified against them to turn them to yourself, and they worked great provocations. Therefore, you delivered them into the hand of their enemies who oppressed them, and in the time of their trouble, when they cried to you, you heard from heaven, and according to your abundant mercies, you gave them deliverers who saved them from the hand of their enemies." Now here in these verses, we find the Levites, they're proclaiming the praises of the Lord. And the reason why is because the Lord was ready to rebuke his people for their rebellious ways. And there were times when he would even use the enemies of Israel to provide his people with the punishment that they needed so that they might finally come to grips with the fact that it was time for them to repent. That's how gracious he is. He, he, he raises up the enemies to punish his people so that they might recognize their need to repent and return. 
Not only that, but the Lord was also ready to raise up deliverers who would deliver his people at the time of their repentance. And as we consider the way in which the Lord was quick to correct his people, you know, I can't help but to remember something else that King Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 3. is there where he declares, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. That's right, it's the love of the Lord that leads him to correct those who trust in him. And, and, you know, when the Lord pours out his correction upon us, it's painful, and yet it's also proof. It's proof that he loves us. Paul also commented on these same verses from Proverbs 3. It's actually in Hebrews chapter 11 where he declares, now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Christian, listen, the compassionate correction of the Lord is a benefit to those who will be trained by it. To those who will receive it and respond to it with repentance, it's a benefit for for them. If you're currently receiving the loving correction of the Lord, the best thing that you can do is to be trained by it. The best thing that you can do is repent and return to the Lord, and in that, enjoy the restoration that comes from the grace of God. In order to further make my case, let's continue to consider this uh, continuing pattern that we find amongst the Israelites. It's here in Nehemiah chapter 9, where we find the Levites continuing to talk about this reoccurring cycle of the Israelites. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 28, here they declared, after they had rest... They again did evil before you. Therefore, you left them in the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies and testified against them that you might bring them back to your law. Yet they acted proudly and did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they shrugged their shoulders, stiffened their necks, and would not hear. Yet for many years you had patience with them and testified against them by your spirit in your prophets. Yet they would not listen. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them nor forsake them, for you are God gracious." And merciful. Here in these verses, we find the Levites continuing to worship the Lord as as they recounted the many, many times that the Lord punished his rebellious people only to then deliver the remnant from their enemies. And in this way, we can see how the love of the Lord is this patient or long suffering love. He, He knows how his people rebel. He knows what it's going to take to bring them to repentance, and yet he suffers long as he continues to guide and, and, and bring us back to those, that place of repentance. Isn't it nice to know that the Lord is patient with his people? It is so good to know that you know God's not up in heaven just going, okay, one more time, and I'm just going to just wreck their world. No, no, he's patient with us. He's long-suffering. And while he would be just to utterly consume those who continue to return to the bondage of their fallen flesh, our gracious God continues to to be patient with us as he conforms the lives of those who will simply receive his rebuke and return to him. 
He's always ready to restore the repentant because he's a long-suffering, loving God. I like the way that Paul put it in Philippians chapter 1. It's there where he, uh, he assures us that uh, we can be confident of this very thing. Not many things we can be confident of, but this is one thing that we can be confident of. He says, you can be confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Incredible. He who began that good work in you is going to complete it. And from this, we can see that the Lord Jesus has promised to keep the covenant that he has made with those who trust in him. And though we might stumble seven times today, the Lord is here to pick us up every single time. He's right here to help us to continue walking by faith with him because, listen, Jesus is not only the author of of our salvation, but he's also the finisher of our faith. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. Therefore, we ought to worship the Lord Jesus because we can be certain that he is going to keep the covenant that he makes with those who trust in him. To further explain what I mean, let's consider the commitment that the Levites were making here with the God of Israel. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 32. Here we find the Levites worshiping the Lord by declaring, now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and awesome God who keeps covenant and mercy. Do not let all the trouble seem small before you that has come up upon us. Our kings and our princes, our priests and our prophets, our fathers, and on all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until this day. However, you are just in all that has befallen us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. Neither our kings nor our princes, our priests nor our fathers have kept your law, nor heeded your commandments and your testimonies, with which you testified against them. For they have not served you in their kingdom or in the many good things that you gave them, or in the large and rich land which you set before them, nor did they turn from their wicked works. Here we are, servants, today. And the land that you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty, here we are, servants, in it. And it yields much increase to the kings you have set over us because of our sins. Also, they have dominion over our bodies and our cattle at their pleasure. And we are in great distress. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. Now, here in the final verses of this chapter, we find the Levites, they're they're making a covenant with God. They're, They're recommitting their covenant with the Lord. They're saying, hey, our leaders, our Levites, our priests, we're sealing this covenant and, and they're, they're continuing to proclaim the praises of, of, of our God as they make this covenant. But listen, it's true here that our God is this great, mighty, awesome God that deserves our worship. And yet they also worship him because he's the one who actually keeps covenant and mercy. They're, they're saying, hey, we're going we're gonna to enter back into this covenant with you, this covenant that we've broken but they're worshiping him because he is the covenant keeper. The word covenant, which is found there in the middle of verse 32, it's actually translated from a Hebrew word which was used of the alliance or the agreement that 
you know, people make with one another or, or in, the, in this context, it's the covenant or the alliance or the agreement that God made with the children of Israel when they agreed to make a covenant with him according to the law of Moses. God gave them the law of Moses and said, you guys agree to this? And they go, yeah, we agree. We're going to keep this. And, and the Levites here are saying, hey, we haven't kept this at all. We've broken this covenant time and time and time again. And then in the final verse of this, cha- of this chapter, they go, yeah, but, we, but this time, this time we're going to do it. <laughs> no problem. We're, we got it this time. Because of all this, because of all the times we've broken the covenant, because of all the times you've punished us, because of all the times we repented, because of all the times we come back, now, now we're going to make a sure covenant. This time we're going to do it. I can, just, I can just imagine God in heaven just laughing. Okay, okay. It's like, it's like you know, parents, when, you're, when your child is just like, I promise I won't do this again. And you're just kind of like, yeah, you're going to do it again. You know, this, isn't, it, isn't it sweet? You know, they're trying to make this little promise that they won't, you know, tell that lie or do that bad thing. Or, and it's, it's sweet to see them make the promise. But you know, you, you know, they're probably going to do it again. And, and that's how I think God is looking at these people. It's like they're trying so hard, <laughs> trying so hard to keep the covenant. And, and yet he knows they're going to break it again. The children of Israel were covenant breakers. But God is not. God is not a covenant breaker. And with that being the case, the Levites worship the Lord as they acknowledge the fact that he was completely just to punish them according to the covenant that they made with him. And it's there in verse 33 again where they declare, you are just in all that has befallen us for you have dealt faithfully but we have done wickedly. That's right. God had been faithful to keep his side of the covenants, and they had not been faithful. They had been wicked in breaking the covenants. And therefore, they're, they're admitting that all the bad things that had come upon Israel, were their, it was their fault because they broke the covenants. And it's so important for us to recognize this too, that when bad things happen to us, it's not because God is unfaithful. It's easy to think that way. Well, God could have stopped it, and because he didn't, therefore, he's a big meanie. You know, he did something wrong. Nope. Everything God does is right. Everything that God does is just and true. Therefore, when bad things befall us, we would do well to look to the real blame, which has to do with, you know, the human condition and even the sins that we struggle with. Don't blame God for the bad things that happen to us. We would do well to remember that he always keeps his covenants. And it's for this reason that even when things are going wrong, even in the most difficult of times, we should worship him in spirit and in truth, knowing that he has always done the right thing and he always will. And this is especially true as we consider the new covenant that he made with us there on the cross. Yeah, there, there's a new covenant. You know, the, the Levites here are praising him, you know, for the way that God kept the old covenant with them. But there's a new covenant, which is a better covenant, which Jesus created on the, on the cross. And, and I like the way that Paul explains it in Hebrews chapter 9. There he informs us in verse 15 that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant 
by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. In other words, the Lord Jesus was creating a new covenant there on the cross so that we can be saved from the condemnation of the old covenant. The old covenant, which is based in the law, condemns those who break the covenant. And we're all going to break the covenant. There's no way for us to keep the old covenant. The, the old covenant is actually, remember, the tutor that brings us to Christ by helping us to understand that we're all covenant breakers. That's why no one gets saved by the old covenant. If someone presents you with a plan of salvation, which is based on the keeping of the law, the law does not save us. The law shows us our need for salvation because we are old covenant breakers. But the new covenant, which was written in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ there on that old rugged cross, it's rendered the old covenant obsolete. Grasp that. The new covenant, which is written in the blood of Jesus Christ, has rendered the old covenant obsolete for those who trust in him. Don't take my word for it. Listen to what Paul says. It's here in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. Here Paul tells us that the new covenant has made the first obsolete. I didn't use that word. Paul did. The new covenant has made the old covenant obsolete. That's right. Those who embrace the new covenant, which was created on the cross of Christ, are no longer living under the condemnation of the old covenant because the old covenant no longer applies to those who are under the new covenant. The old covenant has, made, has been made obsolete for those who trust in Jesus Christ. That's why those who want to come to me with you know, dietary restrictions and Sabbath laws and all these sorts of things, I'm not under the old covenant. That's why we don't teach the tithe here. That's why we don't you know, go back and try to force you know, the law on people. Because by faith in Jesus Christ, we're no longer under the old covenant. It's obsolete for us, Christian. I like the way that Paul summed it up in Hebrews chapter 8. It's verse 6 where he tells us that our Messiah has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. The new covenant that Christ Jesus made on the cross is based on better promises. What are the promises of the old covenant? If you break that law, you're going to be punished. If you break this law, you're going to be punished. If you break this law, you're going to be punished. That's, that, those are the promises of the old covenant. Condemnation for lawbreakers. The new covenant is based on better promises. And the reason why is because the requirements for this covenant have already been accomplished. Think about it like this. You know, when you enter into a contract with somebody... And they're like, okay, here's the conditions of the contract. I'm going to do everything, and you just receive the benefits of the contract. It's like, are you going to think twice about that? It's like, think about going down to, to, to purchase a new, a new vehicle, you know. And the dealer's like, okay, here's the contract here. We're going to pay for everything. We're just going to give you this car if you'll just receive it. What are you going to do? 
no, 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 let's, let's do the old contract where I pay for everything, right? Of course not. This new covenant that Christ Jesus created with his blood satisfies all the requirements so that those who will simply receive it enter into this new contract by faith, receive all of the benefits with the work already completed. The Lord is simply inviting us to receive the benefits of his grace by faith and by faith alone. With that being the case, those who have entered into this covenant by faith in Jesus Christ, we can rejoice in knowing that the completion of this contract is not based on our works or how well we perform. Jesus has completed the requirements for this new covenant. And with that being the case, we can simply worship him knowing that there is now no condemnation for those who trust in Jesus Christ. Therefore, we should worship the Lord because the Lord alone is the one who is able to keep his covenant forevermore. Let's pray.